Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 28, Nick Hayden versus the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of this wondrous film vault, Nathan Marchand. And returning to the island, his third trip here is one of my favorite people, and I hope one of your favorite people too, Nick Hayden. Hello, I'm also one of my favorite people. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> Most days. <laughs> Most days? <laughs> Most days. <laughs> All that really matters is that the, the rest, you're one of the favorite people for everyone else in the oh, family, okay. right? You know? Oh, sure. You I'm know. the golden child. I'm the oldest, so I was always called the golden child. Oh, well, no, I was thinking about your kids. Oh, and, uh, well, it depends on the again, day. But <laughs> you know, they, your kids may not necessarily be no, a huge you know, fan like, of dad. Do your dishes. Oh, I love you, dad. You know, that works great. You know. <laughs> Time to clean your room. Oh, you're such a good dad. <laughs> Yeah, it works really well. It's a little easier with the wife. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of these days, I need to actually drag Na- you, or not me, I should say. You need to drag right. Natasha uh, out on the your next trip onto the island or yeah, something. Yeah, you just don't like might call me out. I'm just dragging her out. I might have to convince her to come over on free will. <laughs> <laughs> that usually works better. It, yeah, I think it does <laughs> normally. Yeah, like, Natasha, let's go do ice cream. Oh, wait, we're going to go watch a movie. <laughs> uh, At Nathan's wife- house. Yeah, yeah. Involving a kaiju. Yeah. So, uh, a transatlantic trip to Monster Island. I'm yeah. Just saying. Yeah, it works. We get, <laughs> you, know, it's, you would never know the way you're going to get here. Yeah, so. yeah, speaking of which, how did Jimmy get you here this week? Well, so I was given a small grant from, you know, I'm teaching now, to do some research up north. And I was hanging out, and there was a... Okay, avalanche problem thing. And when I woke up, I was here. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy brought me up. I don't know. I guess he was doing some sort of um, looking for old skeletons and stuff that he could, like, maybe clone or do something weird with. I don't You're know, into but... cloning now? Oh, okay. That makes sense. You're an engineer, not a geneticist. So you were gathering bones for the scientists here. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Plus, you do remember what happened at our competition, right? We don't need that again. I did not hear about that one. You've never heard of Jurassic Park? I'm oh, that, saying, okay, that you know, competition. That, oh, okay, that competition. I thought maybe yeah. he was just trying to, you know, do some CRISPR gene editing to help the dinosaurs not be as aggressive or something. Oh, that might come in handy with the Retosaurus, you know, <laughs> that we, uh, we do have one Retosaurus here. Uh, and isn't there only one? There's only one right now. Only the one. one, the only. Yes. <laughs> which is a tr- great segue into what our topic is for today, which is the, the beast. The, the, the beast. The beast. From oh. 20,000 Fathoms. <laughs> you forgot the I ending. did forget. So that's the 50s trailer, everyone. <laughs> yes. Because we decided to watch the trailer and some of the other special features. Because I have the Blu-ray copy of it that is what I used to screen it for you today. Yes, we only have one. We've only been able to find one. I mean, there used to be two. There was one back in 1953, which was the subject of this movie. But, mm-hmm. you know, that one's kind of dead. So... <laughs> It's a little hard to have that one yeah. around. Well, again, cloning. Yes. So. Oh, <laughs> that's what you were doing, wasn't it, Jimmy? 
You can neither confirm nor deny that you were collecting Retosaurus bones to clone this thing. Right. You keep telling yourself that and everyone else. Just while lonely. You're at it. Yes, he is lonely. Jimmy the, or the dinosaur? The both, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Jimmy. And, <laughs> although we treat the one here very nice. We call him Red very affectionately. Nice. This is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but you know how the one in the movie was carrying a very nasty disease? Yes. Yeah, we have to make the red on the island wear a face mask because oh. we don't need him spreading that to the rest of the kaiju. I mean, there's been a bit of a panic about whether or not he may have de-COVID. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Like prehistoric COVID, which if it, something's prehistoric, it's, it's worse. automatically worse. Yes. Very bad. Than modern mm -hmm. anything. Well, they might so. have well wiped them all out and not the asteroids. Or yeah, whatever. you never know. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. <sighs> well, I forgot to do it again. At least this time I don't have to worry about screwing that up again this season because this is the last main discussion episode that we're having. Thank you, COVID, for delaying Godzilla versus Kong. I don't care what Jimmy says. Anyway. I forgot to mention that the tail end of the season here is going to be part of a little series that I like to call Kaiju Kings, which is a nice catch-all to talk about Beast from 20,000 Fathoms because it's an important film in the genre and a handful of Toho classics that will be rounding out the season. Also, today's Toku topics are going to be a brief history of nuclear tests, particularly up to the mid-50s when the movie was made, and a brief history of amusement parks. And now... Back to the show. But before we get into all of that, I need to do the entertaining info dump, and then we will get into our film discussion because contractual obligations and all that fun stuff, Jimmy takes such pride in writing these things. Yes, I'm getting to it. Shut up. All right. You can't nail me on a contract violation. I'm going to make sure you never can. So let's get that out of the way through the magic of podcasting, and then we'll dive headlong into our film discussion. The Retosaurus is a ferocious and aggressive ancient dinosaur awakened from a frozen slumber by an H-bomb test in the Arctic. He instinctively migrates down the North American coastline to New York because it was his habitat millions of years ago. Presumably, he attacks anything in his way to defend himself or his territory or to get food. Professor Tom Nesbitt is an intelligent and open-minded scientist who first sees the Retosaurus when the beast emerges from the ice, but everyone believes he was hallucinating. He strives to prove what he saw was real, and after the beast's existence is confirmed, he works with the military to find a way to kill the creature. Lee Hunter is the smart and assertive assistant to Dr. Thurgood Elson, who helps him and Nesbitt with their research on the monster, often providing insights they don't see, while also flirting with Nesbitt. The brilliant yet skeptical Dr. Elson does become Nesbitt's ally, but not until he and Hunter are able to gather more evidence proving the beast is real, after which he advocates that the dinosaur be studied and not killed. The human and kaiju plotlines are unified aside from a minor romantic subplot. The characters' actions and decisions are connected to the Retosaurus in one way or another, whether that be investigating, pursuing, or attacking the creature. The Retosaurus is definitely the problem. Dr. Elson and a pilot descended to the ocean in a diving bell to locate the beast, but the submersible is swallowed by the dinosaur. 
The monster comes ashore in New York City and is attacked by police with pistols and rifles, but bullets have no effect and he eats or kills several officers. The army erects an electrified barricade to halt the creature and manages to wound his throat with a bazooka, driving it back into the sea, but many soldiers are infected with a prehistoric pathogen in its blood. The problem is solved using a combination of science and firepower. When the Retosaurus comes ashore in an amusement park, Nesbitt and sharpshooter Corporal Stone climb a roller coaster track and fire a nuclear isotope into the creature's wound. After several minutes of violent death throes, the monster dies. The witty screenplay by Fred Freiberger and Louis Morheim, with uncredited contributions from director Eugene Laurie and Robert Smith, is a simple and straightforward science fiction thriller with solid characters and a minor subplot. This was the first film whose special effects were directed and implemented exclusively by stop-motion master Ray Harryhausen who created remarkable visuals despite the film's relatively low budget. The Retosaurus model's movements are fluid and lively, imbuing it with a surprising amount of personality. Its interaction with miniature buildings like the lighthouse are equally as astonishing. The integration of special effects and live-action footage is well-executed using superimposition and clever editing. The Arctic sets give a tremendous sense of cold, and the urban sets blend with the special effects almost seamlessly. The film is one of Harryhausen's first great achievements. This is a light film with a few scary moments, but it does have a moderate amount of gravity. With characters attempting to ground the fantastical elements in science, this is more of a science fiction film than a fantasy film. While it technically isn't the first giant monster film, that honor belongs to King Kong, it is experimental in that it was the first atomic monster movie, creating many of the tropes that would be seen in the genre. To that end, this film establishes style for the entire kaiju genre, taking what had been done in 1933's King Kong and modernizing it. Many atomic monster movies would follow in the United States and beyond for many years, most notably Toho's Godzilla in 1954. The film was greenlit after the success of a re-release of King Kong in 1952 to cash in on the renewed interest in monster movies. When it was learned that Ray Bradbury had published a short story later retitled The Foghorn that was similar to their film, the producers bought the screen rights to the story for $2,000 and used the popular author's name and promotions to increase its appeal. The film was meant to entertain a general audience. When released June 13, 1953 by Warner Brothers, who acquired the independent film for $800,000, it grossed $5 million on a $200,000 budget. These would be $7.8 million, $48 million, and $1.95 million, respectively, in 2020. It was booked to 1,422 theaters in less than two months and was one of the highest-grossing films of 1953. While critics were initially lukewarm on it, it has a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and was one of AFI's top 100 science fiction films. Although it has a 6.7 with 6,850 ratings on IMDb, it is beloved by Monster and Harryhausen fans and ranks as one of the most influential genre films ever produced. A few forces are at play in the film. Nesbitt faces opposition from both psychologists and scientists who write off his story of a giant dinosaur as preposterous. 
His friends in the military do the same. Nature clashes with civilization as the Retosaurus lashes out at a modern world he no longer recognizes. This is also seen as military might and technology find themselves outmatched by the creature. To Nesbitt's surprise, Hunter has managed to make her way in the male-dominated paleontology field. Elson advocates that the Retosaurus be studied for scientific advancement while the military seeks to kill it to protect human life. While it doesn't meditate heavily on them, the film does explore several themes. Nesbitt argues that science has limitations and that something can, quote-unquote, simply be, as in true, even if science hasn't observed it. Hunter's ambition and position in a male-dominated field is looked upon favorably. The protagonists pursue truth with fervor. Through ingenuity, the protagonists defeat the monster with science and the military working in tandem. Ironically, radiation both revives and kills the Retosaurus, illustrating the more positive American attitude toward nuclear energy. All right, kaiju lovers, with the season's final entertaining info dump finished, it's time for Toku Talk. All right, with that out of the way now, Nick. Yes. Fresh out of the screening room. This yes. is your first time seeing this it movie. It is my first time seeing yes. this. Opening thoughts. Opening thoughts. I think, well, it was interesting as we were watching it, I was asking some questions about timelines. Um, and this was one of the early American kaiju films. Mm-hmm. And which makes sense because it is has a general structure, but there's not a lot of flair necessarily. I mean, it's well done, but it's just mm-hmm. sort of like, oh, monster. Oh. We will talk about him, make sure he's real. Oh, uh, let's kill him. The end. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit more going no, on there. I, there is some conflict. We do have one scientist. We have one scientist. One scientist, oh. Dr. Elson, who says, no, we shouldn't kill this thing. It's a, the scientific find of the century, which I say as soon as we actually confirm that it's real, because before that, I deny its existence. Also, I'm two days away from retirement. I mean, I'm Death. taking a, my first vacation in 30 years. I'm totally going to survive this movie i'm jumping ahead a little bit yeah. so he did not quite survive no anyways it's it's an entertaining movie but you can tell that it's more of the it's an earlier version because you know it's kind of setting up the style of some of these for, future movies without necessarily playing with it at this point mm-hmm. but like the the model is, does a very good job i think and like you said that you know we were talking about the arctic set is cold <laughs> um, yes <laughs> and again like it's a good movie yeah so. I, i'm glad to glad to hear the big reason i wanted to have you on for this is because this is suggested suggested <laughs> that, by that the- is what it actually says in the credits suggested by i'm like well, it's still got more of the source material in it than the iRobot yeah. movie with Will Smith, so... <laughs> by Ray Bradbury. Yes. A story who by you... Ray Bradbury, who's one of your favorite authors. Yes. So I just said, you know what? Let's I do have it. to have Nick. And I will tell you right now, listeners, kaiju lovers, this is based on a story called The Foghorn. Read it. Yeah. It was originally called, interestingly, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. You heard all about this in the entertaining info dump, so I won't rehash it here. But y'all need some more Bradbury in your life. I'm just saying. <laughs> Speaking as a writer and a lit nerd, yes, I nerd other things besides kaiju. You need some Bradbury in your life. I convinced my sister to read Bradbury. Now she's in love with him because how can you not be? Yeah, he's uh, he just he's great. I had my eighth grade class read uh, "There Will Come Soft Rains." 
Oh, which is a great story. Absolutely. A prob- honestly, probably one of the most brilliant short stories ever written. I'm not going to get too much on a tangent. We could yeah, probably go on a whole tangent about Bradbury. Yep. But all you need to know, listeners, is that There Will Come Soft Rains has no characters. It is nothing but setting. That's and great. it is one of the most compelling short stories you'll ever read. It takes a special literary genius to make something like that work. <laughs> so Bradbury's story, Foghorn, this Foghorn in this lighthouse would yep. cause... I have uh, my yes. copy right here. It's from the Golden Apples... Of, oh, it's collected, I should say, yeah. in the Golden Apples of the Sun. It was originally published in the Saturday Evening Post. Which is where they saw the picture that inspired the movie. Yes. <laughs> we watched the special features. Yes. <laughs> but anyways, the, the monster in that one attacks a lighthouse because it's trying to find its mate. Mm-hmm. Because they think the foghorn, he thinks the foghorn is the sound of its mm-hmm. mate. Yeah, the two characters that we have in that are a pair of lighthouse keepers, mm-hmm. one of whom comes across as being like a grizzled old guy. Yeah. And then the other one is this young whippersnapper. Yep. He's just like, I'm here because I want to learn how to be a lighthouse keeper. And the guy's like, you'll never believe it. I've seen this monster. Yes. It was hiding in the ocean for millions of years, and then it heard the foghorn and thought, that must be one of my kind, and I'm lonely, and I'm going to go find it. And then it actually does. Yeah. You know, the, the young guys are like, oh, you're. You're crazy, old yeah. man. You're, you're crazy. And then he actually shows up and, <laughs> and then destroys the lighthouse because it came all the way out there. He's like, you're not one of my kind. I am angry. <laughs> the anger of unrequired love. Yes. That's the big takeaway. Yes. And again, the movie does not have that theme of the anger of unrequired love. It just has the theme of monster woken up, trying to go back home kills stuff <laughs> uh, although you were kind of reading a you little could, bit of you the could short read, story in there you could read this was really interesting i thought <laughs> but it, it is interesting they do still have that whole like he's millions of years old he's woken up because in this case of a nuclear bomb which you told me was yes. the first nuclear bomb yeah, in the movie this like is this. the first atomic monster movie so i would say honestly next to the original king kong which you yes saw which is the, very very for good. the show this has to be probably the most influential giant monster movie ever produced right up there with the original Godzilla. So I would say it's King Kong, this movie, and the original Godzilla. They laid the groundwork for everything that came after it. And without Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, it's fathomable... <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Ha! Good work. ...that we may have not gotten Godzilla. And sometimes I wonder if maybe without this Bradbury story. Yeah. Possibly. it's a little, I think it's a little harder to argue because I've gotten some kind of conflicting stories about the timing of when the story was published and when the movie started production and whether or not they made the Bradbury would, t- would tell you that the, the movie was ma- that somebody read his story and then started making the movie. Yeah. Well, other stories say... That the story was out, but they were seemed like they were unaware of it. But then they're like, oh, crap, he's a popular author. So we better buy the rights. And so we can ride Bradbury's coattails and stuff like that. Well, so, And I wonder, it's possible that he had the idea of this monster and then saw the lighthouse photo that Ray Harryhausen claims was the inspiration. And then just added that into the mix of ideas, too. I mean, who knows how the yeah. sausage gets made. Yeah, pretty much. But I feel like since we're already talking about the story, I did want to read an excerpt from it. Got to get some high. Well, is it is it too much to call Bradbury high literature? Probably a little. Depends who you talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag too soon. When did you become a literary critic? 
I've studied that more than you did in school. Just saying. Jimmy's a man of many talents. Apparently. Or assumed talents. Yeah. He's got more tall tales than, I don't know, Cup from <laughs> from the Transformers <laughs> movie. He's always telling wild war stories. I'm telling you. But anyway, I felt like I would uh, read a little excerpt here, a paragraph that Ooh. goes into detail about the monster. Because... I'm not 100% sure the illustration from the Saturday Evening Post and in the movie is exactly what Bradbury had in mind, but uh, I'll read it and you can you let me know. Yeah, yeah, you can let me know, Nick. And listeners, if you want to send in feedback about this, please do. We love hearing from our listeners. It's one of the best parts of the show. So anyway, here's the foghorn. It was a cold night, as I have said. The high tower was cold, the light coming and going and the foghorn calling and calling through the raveling mist. We couldn't see far, and you couldn't see plain, but there was the deep sea moving on its way about the night earth, flat and quiet, the color of gray mud, and here were the two of us alone in the high tower, and there, far out at first, was a ripple, followed by a wave, a rising, a bubble, a bit of froth, and then, from the surface of the cold sea, came a head, a large head, dark-colored, with immense eyes, and then a neck. And then, not a body, but more neck and more. The head rose a full 40 feet above the water on a slender and beautiful dark neck. Only then did the body, like a little island of black coral and shells and crayfish, drip up from the subterranean. There was a flicker of tail. In all, from head to tip of tail, I estimated the monster at 90 or 100 feet. The long neck does not translate into the movie. Not quite. <laughs> but I guess the movie one is actually probably more impressive. I don't know. Impressive is what I mean. But like overwhelming, menacing, that long neck Monstrous. one would be. Monstrous? That would work. Yeah. Yeah. This, I've got, Bradbury gives you more of a sense like one of those prontosauruses with like the fins. Uh, Plesiosaur. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, exactly. Which, believe it or not, it's real. But <laughs> that's, a, that's a story for another day. Okay. <laughs> Zilla has met. Oh, met interesting. Nessie. They had a bit of a thing. Huh. Yeah. That's, like I said, a whole other story. A whole other story. <laughs> yeah. So, movie-wise, we start in the Arctic, and they're doing the science, and we have a narrator for a little bit for yeah, no which, good reason. Uh, oh, my gosh. That narrator is there for five minutes, and then he goes away, and both of us... Just thinking, could we have done this without the narrator? I think, I think so. we could have done this yeah. without the narrator, but we needed all of those important details about Operation Experiment. <laughs> Operation Experiment. Yes. Government which name. is uh, which apparently is kept top secret by having the most generic sounding name ever. Like Operation Experiment, not not worth looking into. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> well, what's that one about? Oh, nothing important. Just. We'll go, bomb testing yeah, in the we'll, Arctic. We'll go back. Oh, Project X. That sounds better. <laughs> yes. We had Operation Experiment and X-Day. X-Day. X-Day sounds a little more exciting. Like that, yeah. Yeah, X-Day. That's when you celebrate that letter of the alphabet, the X-Men, or Gilala, I yeah. guess. You know, the X from outer space. All the, so, all the, all the above. It's like yeah. Life Day, but for mutants. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it was good, but it's kind of life day. It's, it's canon now. I mean, <laughs> well, the Mandalorian. Yeah, exactly. The Mandalorian yeah. celebrates. Well, he so, doesn't celebrate it. But just anyways. so you know, Jimmy, I'm getting you a life day card Ooh. and probably a life day present. Hey, no, calm down. 
Calm down. We can't. Wait, I got to keep these interruptions down a little bit, man. Okay. Take your chill pill. Did you forget to take the Dramamine pills like Dr. Elson today in the movie? He's I'm like, just saying. He's like, I won't get seasick. I'm too excited. I almost <laughs> thought. I almost thought he'd take his pipe into the. Uh, into, the, <laughs> into the diving bell and be like, ooh. <laughs> uh, apparently the sailors have enough sense to tell him, yeah, you don't want Not in the uh, diving to bell. smoke in an enclosed space. <laughs> so it's interesting, though. The, the nuclear bomb is actually super downplayed. Yeah, which is interesting because I thought they could have brought it back because the first time I saw this movie a few years ago, I thought, when jumping ahead, you know, yeah. we've already mentioned it a little bit in the, the opening, but they wound the Retosaurus, yes. and it starts bleeding, and then they realize, oh my gosh, it's got a million, uh, you know, hundred million year old disease in it, and this is not good. <laughs> and I thought at first that what was actually happening was the thing's blood was radioactive, yeah. which actually would have made really interesting sense, but then it would have wrecked the ending because they kill it with a radioactive isotope. Yeah. Which is a little bit ironic now that I think about it, that it gets revived by a nuclear bomb, and then they kill it with a radioactive isotope. Well, because the bomb just melts the ice it's in. It doesn't have anything to do with the radiation. I mean, they at this point, in this movie, nuclear bombs are still like the beginning of a new genesis. I mean, that was like their phrase mm-hmm. there. Like, it's a hopeful thing, as opposed to later movies, you get this, or Godzilla in a couple of years, mm-hmm. you get this sense that, no, this is the... And again, they're they're on the other side of the bomb. Yeah, uh, so yeah. They have a different perspective. that is a whole to do. My yeah, exactly, friend. exactly. But this does. I think it is worth noting comparing this with Godzilla, the 1954 film. The marked di- cultural differences, and particularly the attitude toward the bombs. Yeah, here it's a little bit more cavalier. Yeah, I mean the. There's, they make they at least acknowledge the fact that there's danger involved with they're it. They're like, oh, but we'll figure it out in a couple of years. Yeah, it was something like that. He's like, you know, are we uh, start opening, you know, writing the first chapter of a new Genesis or are we writing the last chapter of the last one? You know, stuff like that. So there's at least some lip service given to that, but it's still a very American, more or less positive attitude yeah. in one form or another toward the bomb and nuclear things. Progress. Progress. Whereas the Japanese do not no. share that sentiment. No. They do not. And not that, the, not that this movie's trying to make any... I don't think it's trying very hard to make any big point of that sort of stuff. Anyways. No, but it is certainly tapping into, I would say, at least some nuclear fears that were going on at the time. I mean, this is the early days of the Cold War, so that yeah. there is that there. Because one of our toku topics today is going to be discussing briefly, at the very least, the history of nuclear tests. And there were several major ones that happened before 1953, after the war and everything. So these would have been in the headlines at the time. It would have been something on people's minds. Yeah. So it was a topical thing to tap into at this time in history. So I'm not surprised that it's there, but it does seem... Unlike in Godzilla, it's really just a plot point. It, yeah. And it's only really at the beginning, and it never really comes back, whereas it is the focus in Godzilla. It's, in many ways, it seems like in this movie, the focus is, let's this monster run around do things. Yes. You know, because obviously the nuclear bomb, atomic testing, you could have done more with, and like Godzilla does. You could have done a ton of stuff with this, like, ancient disease thing i mean that's a very like war of the worlds but reverse 
Yeah, uh, which yeah, is I mean, kind of cool. Just, it's one of those things. It's an intriguing plot point that gets introduced within, like, what, the last 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like this act movie. three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then all it really is is just to amplify the threat of the monster at this point. So it's just, okay. And then when the monster dies, the end, right away. Yeah, it is you know, one just... of the most abrupt endings I have ever seen in a movie, I mean, you literally get what five or ten seconds of denouement. Yeah, overthrowing out some literary yeah. and writer terms here, but for the for those who don't know, that is the falling action. After you've had a climax, it's where everything just kind of calms down, and it's like these final moments where everything kind of gets wrapped up, and the characters kind of get acclimated to their new normal and things like that. Because as far as character development, there's really not much of anything outside of like, I used to be skeptic, now I'm not. Sort yeah, of I thing. mean, the, these are not entirely flat characters. Not boring characters. No, they're not. No, they're they're entertaining characters. They have some good lines. Some oh yeah, stuff. that was something yeah. that we were remarking. Is just this film clearly comes from the old school way of writing screenplays. Yeah. Which is make every single character, no matter how brief their appearance is in your script, you make them as interesting as like, possible. Like, like the nurse. One of, yeah, the nurse who comes in and talks with Nesbitt. And I just I love their whole conversation because she just comes in and, and he says, well, what's going on in the world today? As he opens up the newspaper and she says, eh, just more death in politics. And <laughs> the only thing worth reading is the comic section. And I'm thinking, some things never change. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> there's an interesting commentary yeah, for exactly. you right there. People felt that way 60 years ago. They've always felt that way. <laughs> it's going on 70 now almost now that I think about it. Yeah. 67 years. This movie's 67 years old. We didn't start the fire, but we tried to fight it. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> oh, gee whiz, I thought the song references were done now that the Metters weren't here. <laughs> now you're just keeping it up. I love it. Yeah. Anyway, so every single character is interesting. The dialogue is really witty. And we got some I, blooming romance, sort of. Sort of. Scientists go on dates. Really. Yeah. <laughs> apparently they go to ballets. Yeah, why not? You know, because that's what and, scientists and do on dates. So and when they flirt, they talk about their respective fields and about how, like, I have to study the past so you know how to study the future. <laughs> you know, it's, because so, so here's fossils, a the atom. <laughs> yeah. The atoms didn't exist in the past, only in the future. Apparently. Yeah. And then we weaponize them because that was a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing's gone wrong with that. Don't send me angry letters. <laughs> really? You're going to send me an angry letter? I dare you. I dare you. I can send you one too if you want. <laughs> well, you know the email address. You've listened to the credits on the show. Blah. So there you go. So we have some stuff going on with the characters, and they're li they're interesting. They're likable. They're likable. They're mm -hmm. interesting, but it's not really a character driven story. And, and a lot. And to be honest, with a lot of older science fiction stories, whether they be in print or film, you know, with a few exceptions, you know, I would say Jules Verne was yeah. a little bit more character driven than say H.G. Wells. Yeah. But the characters are there to serve the plot and to serve the idea. And the idea this time is dinosaur. <laughs> I mean, really. I think that's why it was so, I mean, 
from what I know, it was super popular. Oh, it was one of the highest grossing films it's, of 1953. It's the Jaws of the 1950s, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's super popular, sets off a run Yeah, because, of... I mean, yeah, you had them, beginning of the end, the giant Gila monster. I know not all of these are good, and some of them are on MST3K, but I don't care. What? You know, Godzilla, obviously, is the yeah. biggest thing to come out of it. Well, and that's the thing, is that some of the follow-ups end up on MST3K are not great. Like, this is very well, I mean, it's... it's I don't, know, I don't even want to say excellently well done, but it's very I good. Would, it's, it's very not, enjoyable. I would call this a B movie. I would say it no. is an A picture. Yes. Maybe low tier A picture. That might be a little bit mean. That just seems a little bit too mean to me, period. It's no, not a B movie. No, it's very well done. And like uh, in one of the things we watched, it's it was a very low budget movie for back then. Even back then, yeah. it sounded like. Yeah. And apparently it was like an, an independent film as yeah. well. And then Warner Brothers picked it up. And, and so it's you know, very, made very, very of money off of it. And <laughs> Yes. Which honestly, I think should tell you something that one of the highest grossing movies of that year was technically an independent film that got bought by a major studio. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know they made some changes. The, it, the movie had a different score before it got bought and then the score got replaced. And I, I will tell you, I think the score is appropriately bombastic. Yes. You know, the interesting thing, Harryhausen, who's a student of Willis O'Brien, mm-hmm. you remember from King Kong. Yes. He wanted Max Steiner, who composed for King Kong okay. to work on this movie. And unfortunately, it didn't happen. And I'm thinking, how perfect would that have been? Although I will say, the score we did get is at times very King Kong-esque. It's big and it's bombastic. Especially when he's attacking New York. Yes. So it still works, but you were connecting. I want to play, I'm going to go back to that a yeah. little bit. Talk about you connecting the movie. You were joking while we were watching. It's like, it's the story with none of the substance. Yeah. You know, because that's what happens with a lot a of these movie. literary yeah. adaptations yeah. when they get made in the films. Yes. <laughs> I have three exceptions to the book is always better rule. But then you actually started making connections, but it's more subtext yeah, and, than and, anything else. You now, we mentioned that the, the short story is about unrequited love. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. It's, not, it's, uh, not it's love. loneliness. Lonely, and un- deep loneliness. I mean, the foghorn is representative of deep loneliness, and that loneliness doesn't really come through in the movie. You can read it on it. Yeah. You want, but yeah. I don't think a normal person without the context of Foghorn would. Yeah, but the way you were connecting it while we were watching it is that the monster in the story attacks the lighthouse because it realizes the thing I've been following all this time is not one of my kind, and I yeah. am still alone, and he rages. And you were saying when the monster came ashore in New York is that they say all he's doing is coming back to what he thinks is his habitat, yep. his home, I guess you could say it's like a salmon returning to where he was spawned. Yeah, it, and then he gets there and suddenly it's this concrete jungle and it makes him angry. Yeah, I was just thinking, if you saw it from his point of view, it's like Rip Van Winkle. He woke up after 10 million years like, what is all this stuff? And who are these worms walking around my land? And he starts eating them. Okay, thank you, Jimmy. I, I just threw out numbers there. Oh, so what if he forgot a zero? The point was communicated. He's old. <laughs> very old <laughs> yes <laughs> but i do think it looks that... not a day over a million though oh uh, yeah i mean seriously yeah although he comes across since we're on the subject of the special effects and the monster i really do feel like that thing is i swear harryhausen modeled him after an angry cat because yeah, that's the way he some behaves that, some of those movements his tail you know, is very cat you know, he's a little twitchy and the tail he's like 
like the first time that the he starts getting shot at his his defense to that is he just turns around and just starts flicking the tail at him. <laughs> well, while we're talking about flicking the tail and stuff, we got we could call out the the best minor character. Which is that yes. police officer. <laughs> the unnamed cop who has nerves of adamantium. He's so casual. He's not, everyone else is running and panicking. And he's just casually walking up between the cars, the monster smashing everything around him. And then he just gets out his gun. He's like, like he starts shooting at it. And he's, he's like, not oh. a shred of fear. I mean, no. if he had managed to prove that it wasn't just his nerves made of adamantium because the rest of him is not made no, of adamantium. No, it, it got I chopped mean, pretty good. I, 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 was, uh, I was joking that uh, the, the cop says, I've got guts. <laughs> well, he's like, I have the guts to face you. And the monster says, yeah, I eat guts. You know, <laughs> and then he you know, chomps on him. He's, but, just like, he's, he's just like, oh, it's a dinosaur. Time to shoot it. I mean, <laughs> this basically, he's like, does no, no expression. He's like, okay, let's do this thing. <laughs> I think, you know, in a modern movie, we have, like, this 10-minute fight scene as, like, the cop is, like, Neo and the dinosaur <laughs> jumping around, but, like, not breaking a sweat. Some anime sort of, like, trigun sort of thing. Pacifist. And then he gets eaten. And then he gets eaten. Yeah. <laughs> the movie will be twice as long. And I, I think I've actually seen this movie. It's called Godzilla 98. <laughs> Here's a transition for you. I've said, I don't know if I've said this on this podcast. I know I've said it elsewhere. Where that movie has more in common with this than it does anything Godzilla. And to be honest, with a few minor changes to that script, it could have just been a bad 90s remake of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Oh, yeah. In fact, I made a list of the things that that movie parallels with this one. And I'll go over them for you really quick right here. And you can tell me if I'm crazy or not. You've seen Godzilla yes. 98, right? Yes. I'm, I'm sure you probably blocked it from your memory like a lot Yeah, no, I don't remember have. much of it anymore. I've seen yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. Be a little nice to Dr. Tatopoulos. He gets a little tired of people ragging <laughs> on him about that here on the island. So if you go meet him in the common area or him. something, you'll be nice. All right. Plus, getting a little tired of people saying, you look just like Matthew Broderick. And he's like, shut up. Anyway. <laughs> anyway I thought so, it was like Inspector Gadget. Yeah, well, yeah, that too. Okay. So, a survivor from the wreck boat is visited in a hospital by another character. Yeah. Except in this case, it's not Sean Renault, which is unfortunate. The monster takes New York City. That's probably the most obvious one. Yeah. Scientist, hero, and a love interest. Yeah. Although. Um, minor. Uh, I will say Lee is infinitely better than Audrey. Okay. I don't know how Tatopoulos and Audrey stayed together, I'm telling you. But uh, Monster comes ashore on, in a dock. Yeah. Except they don't have the old fisherman running away. Yeah. Monster picks up a car in his mouth. Mm-hmm. And the monster somehow is able to hide in the freaking city. Yep. That is a good. frequent complaint about Godzilla Night Is Like, how the heck do they lose track of this thing? Well, guess what? The the Redosaurus can hide too, but at least in Godzilla 98, they say, well, he burrows. This one is just like, he magically disappears. And, and reappears we don't in, know where he is. He appears inside roller coasters. Yes. Somehow. Yes. That was another thing. It's just like, how did he get into the loop for the roller coaster at the end? Because I didn't see any part where it was knocked over and <laughs> where he probably plowed he through. Just, he, he ducked down. <laughs> Very in. gently. Very and then down. he proceeds to start eating it. Yes. I was he, like, come on, dude. I, I I would think after you eat about a third of the track and you'd be like, oh, oh, oh that's not delicious. Maybe this part will be delicious. You need more oh, fiber in his still diet. Still not delicious. <laughs> 
<laughs> what was your joke for that? I oh, I uh, I only needed toothpicks originally, but maybe no, 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 no. Wait, you, you, and then actually, you had the since you're speaking as a dad, <laughs> you've got three kids now. You made probably the best joke when I was, I was like, "Why is he eating that thing still?" But it's probably not. He just chomps on it and spits it out. And you said, "Oh, he's teething." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, why not? Or maybe he just needs, he needs more fiber in his diet. That too. <laughs> I don't know. I can tell you, to this day, Red is a little tired of the other kaiju asking him for wood when they play yeah. Settlers of Catan. <laughs> I, I'm just saying. Yeah, he's like, really, guys? So the other Redosaurus ate a roller coaster. Get over it. Get over it. <laughs> not the weirdest thing ever eaten by a kaiju. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> He's trying to cleanse that policeman out of his throat. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like, I need a toothpick. I got, uh, I got cops stuck in my teeth. <laughs> he was actually uh, his teeth with a shotgun. <laughs> but while I'm thinking about it, since I just talked about the parallels with a terrible Godzilla movie, yes. let's talk about the parallels with the good one. Okay, yes. And you've seen the original yes, film. It's been a, while, it's been a yes. little while. But it is uncanny how many parallels there are between this Hollywood blockbuster and Godzilla. And this may not be all of them, but these are all the ones that I wrote down when I watched this movie in preparation for this broadcast. Nuclear Tests Awaken the Monster. Yes. Features an elderly scientist who thinks the monster should be studied and not killed. Yes. There is something of a romance. Now, Mm -hmm. it's more pronounced, actually, weirdly enough, in, (laughs) in the Godzilla film. You have a series of attacks on boats. Yes. Monster rampages through a city. King Kong kind of set that up, but this really solidified the trope. Yeah, because because King Kong say. didn't go to a city. He got taken to yes. a city. Yes. So. Scientist dives underwater in a diving bell to find creature, which is in Godzilla, but in that case, it was just a scuba suit. Yeah. Also, in that movie, it was to destroy Godzilla, whereas in this, they're trying to find it. Yeah. And the scientist dies during the dive. And also during the sequence, they spot the monster in a rocky area. And the scientist talks with a woman. And that happens in the Godzilla film as well. Yeah. As well. The context is very different. Yeah. And I mentioned before that the Retosaurus in this picks up a car. Yeah. Like in the 98 film. Well, in the case of Godzilla 54, it was a train. But it's okay, still yeah. a very similar image, at least a related idea. And but the thing that's really interesting, though, is we actually see casualties. Yes. That's a little bit surprising, considering this was probably made as essentially a blockbuster. But they actually show people getting hurt, dying. And we're not we're not just the cop getting eaten, but people getting crushed under rubble. They give and, us numbers. And they give us numbers. It was like, what, 180 80 people and killed and 1,500 injured? Yeah. I mean, they're giving actual numbers to this. Which, in this one, is just to show, yeah, this monster is a threat. A whereas deal. in Godzilla, it was that was the whole thing. Yeah. You know, the whole movie is based around that. Yeah. And then we have a hospital scene yep. in the aftermath of it where we're seeing one person is declared dead. We're seeing other people are hurt. So again, in this movie, to illustrate the level of the uh, how threatening the monster is, in Godzilla, it's the whole point. Yes. The military mobilizes to fight the monster, but he seems immune to bullets. Yes. <laughs> to quote the brigadier from Doctor Who, <laughs> for once I wish we could fight an alien menace that wasn't immune to bullets. <laughs> <laughs> so we got the cops coming out in this yeah, which movie. is really interesting 
instead of the military being the first responders, it's actually the police. And honestly, which I actually think is more true to life, the police would be the real first responders. The yeah. military is not going to mobilize that quickly. Especially back in the 50s. Yeah. So kudos to them for actually thinking about that. And the monster attacks electrical wires. Mm -hmm. Now, in this film, it actually stops him. Yeah. In Godzilla, it didn't work. <laughs> this monster is far more destructible than yes. Godzilla. Which, there are messages behind that. But it, yes. But the yes. whole idea of the durable monster that's able to resist military weapons to, to an extent is definitely a trope of the genre. Yes. And we'll keep seeing it. Like I said, it's one of the things that gets solidified by Godzilla. And I mean, even in this, the military is not able to stop him. And technically, I guess you could say, actually, now that I think about it, it's not really a purely military solution. Just like in Godzilla films, it's never a purely military solution mm -hmm. other than Godzilla 98 <laughs> that kills the monster. Now they use a military sharpshooter, but it's... Nesbit, the nuclear physicist. Nesbit. I don't know about that name. <laughs> Tom Nesbit, <laughs> who was apparently played by a Swiss man because I was trying to figure out his accent the mm -hmm. whole time. I was like, what the heck accent is that? You sound a little weird, dude. He's the nuclear physicist, like I said, and then he says, we'll use a radioactive isotope, but I need someone to actually shoot it into the open wound are you a dead shot? Yes, sir. And then another one of the great lights in the whole movie said, you know how to use this? I pick my teeth with it. I'm like, oh my gosh. Go. We got somebody who thinks he's as BA as Captain Gordon, our head of security here on the island. I mean, I'm pretty sure he uses a rifle as a toothpick. Yeah. I mean, you should see what the man eats in, mm. the, you know, in the break room here on the island. He's, he's a wee bit crazy. Anyway. <laughs> So, <laughs> so it's not a purely military solution. What you think is, which is again, but that's a very Japanese thing. But in later American films, I do think you tend to see the more of a military. So which again illustrates the differences between cultures. Yes, America exactly. being not militaristic, I would say, but certainly military positive. Yeah, I yeah, guess you could yeah. Say, and I think I think know. we, especially in our stories or movies, we like the sort of just like brute battle. Yes, and, and that's that's it's how a very we finish it Western up. culture. Yeah, sort we of don't thing, tend to talk say. our way out of things or find non-violent solutions to <laughs> issues. <laughs> At least in our stories. Yes, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm suddenly thinking of Independence Day, where you know uh, it was a military solution, but hey, the, the aliens just started shooting. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they gave them much of a chance to talk. So yeah, so like I said, there's so much about it, but Godzilla 54 goes in such a different direction. Yes. So it's taking, it's like it takes the a skeleton and puts a whole different yeah, yeah the way I, the beast way, on it. Yeah, <laughs> the, the beast, the beast, the beast from 20,000 fathoms. Oh, don't spoil our fun. <sighs> anyway. The way I had explained it to you was that this is a blockbuster, but Godzilla 54 is an art house film. Yeah. It's so night and day. Yeah. With all this. It now, is. it would be a really interesting double feature to show both of those movies and then compare and contrast, contrast them yeah. afterward. I think that would be really interesting, but that's an adventure for another day. Yes. <laughs> so we bring all of this up, but what's kind of interesting is how quickly our very, I guess it makes sense, our very scientific characters 
try to write off this monster. When Nesbitt gets back to the States from the Arctic, and he says, I saw a monster, I saw a monster. And they're like, and it has a psychologist who's sitting there who's like, you didn't see a monster. This was clearly a, a hallucination you had because you were under tremendous stress and your mind snapped for a few minutes and saw a monster. And so like, so you're writing this off yeah. as a PTSD hallucination? This is not the beast you're looking for. Yeah, this is not the beast you're looking for. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad I could diffuse the PTSD joke of Nathan, who was very insensitive with the Star Wars. Hey, so, hey. It was. Yeah, look, uh, you don't have to like him. You should treat him nice. Uh, hey, hey, we may badger each other on the air, but Jimmy and I are actually really good friends. Or like you know? Shark and Octopus? Yes, like in this movie. Okay. Which, oh my gosh. Dude. <laughs> we're all, we're all right. We're, let's, let's talk Sorry. about that really quick as it's in my notes. I just, because it's there, kind it's, of a sidetrack in the movie. A, it, is, it is a little bit of a sidetrack in the movie. When Dr. Elson goes down, he's like, I'm seeing the sea life doing things. And uh, <laughs> we got a couple of the residents who are not getting along right now. And then it's a... It's a real shark and a real octopus fighting each other. And it would honestly be kind of bold and interesting if it wasn't so obviously in an aquarium because the octopus actually grabs the <laughs> the glass yeah, at yeah. one point. He's like, really? Really? But the thing that's most shocking is I'm pretty sure that those were both real animals and they actually filmed the shark eating the octopus and they put it in this movie. Don't tell PETA. <laughs> I'm just saying. You know how they have to put a thing at the in the credits for movies now that says no animals were harmed in the making of this motion picture? Yeah, they can't put it in so, this one. Jimmy, <laughs> do you have a time machine? Okay, good. I'm glad you don't have a time machine. I just I can see it being misused from people like Peter going back and trying to fix movies and then oh, has all kinds of problems. <laughs> oh man. Which kind of goes back to another Bradbury story. It does. The sound, it? Of thunder. sound of thunder, a butterfly effect. In this case yeah. it'd be like the sound of Octopus is not dying. The sound of Peta. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are going to get letters. <laughs> but so they, they if it's not Peta, it's going to be scale. They're, they're the kaiju right activists that we have to deal with on occasion. Oh here. man, <sighs> yeah. That. So yeah, so they wouldn't write off as like hallucination, which I guess is the only explanation if you don't believe them. But like five people are like, you're crazy. It's like, I'm not crazy. Like, yes, you are. Like, okay. Well, the thing I'm thinking about is, okay, let's take what the psychologist says. You're in a harsh environment. You're under a lot of stress, kind of life-threatening situation. You just saw one of your friends get hurt. You think he's, you just, and then he died. He's like, but he wasn't dead when I found him. And, you know, yeah. and all of this stuff. I don't understand how someone in that situation would snap and imagine a dinosaur. Yeah, He's I do a it nuclear all the time. physicist. Why would he imagine a dinosaur? If he was a paleontologist, I might be willing to yeah, go with that. Exactly. But he's a nuclear physicist. So it already, in my opinion, already just seems like a BS excuse to try to write it off. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Which like, I think like, is what the movie is trying to say. Yeah, this is a BS excuse that they're trying to write They're it like, off. well, we don't know what you mean, but it can't be real. So yeah. mumbo jumbo. Yeah. But then we get a scene later where Nesbitt goes to Elson and tells him the story. And Elson actually gives us some real science where yes. he's saying there's no way that this can happen. It'd be a hundred million years old. You can't hibernate. You know, they can't long. hibernate for that long. It's like, oh, but it could be like a bear. It's like, yeah, a bear can do that for one winter with all the food stored. In yeah. it. it doesn't work here. And then Lee, we get introduced to Lee, mm -hmm. our love interest. 
As much as I hear, even some of my fellow podcasters kind of complain about how 50 sci-fi movies treat women, I feel like Lee is strangely progressive for no, 1953. She's yeah. very assertive. She's very driven. She's very smart. She's yep. in a scientific field. And they, you know, She's not damned on distress say, yeah. at any point. Yeah, and Nesbitt even says, a girl in paleontology? And, you know, he, so he kind of calls it out a little bit, and she acknowledges, oh, yeah, you know, aren't very many women who do this. And she basically said, like, yeah, I argue with my teacher all the time. Then he hired me. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so, like I said, weirdly progressive for 1953. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying. I'm just putting that out there. Put that out there. I'm talking to you, Travis, at Kaiju Weekly. (laughs) I know you probably want to write me about this. I know you love Harryhausen. So send me some feedback. I'd love to talk to you about this issue. But we had all these re- reasons why. Well, you know, they anyway, so he mammoths, keeps, yeah. but they were they were. Yeah, well, she brings up ma- mastodons. Mastodons, and yes. he's like the the meat was still good. It was frozen, and he said, "Yeah, but there's the difference is they weren't alive. It was, it was, <laughs> it was meat." <laughs> yeah, so you know, so and I think it's interesting. So they're actually paying lip service to the fact that yeah, this is an insane concept that makes no sense scientifically. Apparently, they haven't spent enough time on Monster Island. Let me tell no. you, they invented a whole other branch of science around. Here. They call it kaijuology. No, oh, yeah. I'm just saying, we've learned a lot in 67 years. <laughs> but all that being said, so they're, they're bringing up all of these issues that there would be with this. And I think it's interesting that this script is smart enough to acknowledge that it's kind of a preposterous concept. Yeah. Yeah. It's at least acknowledging it. But then our scientist characters go about things in a very scientific manner. They, you know, they have to replicate results. They have to get the same descriptions and the same reports from different people at different times. And so everything coincides and we, we have the funny scene of two scientists flirting, you know, as I joked, where they're going over these different dinosaur illustrations, all from Charles R. Knight, which this needs to be mentioned. The illustrations that this man did have been tremendously influential. The popular image of dinosaurs he essentially created. Okay. They were the inspiration in King Kong and they were, inspirations for this movie and many many more that came like i said when someone says dinosaur to you the image that comes into your head is probably something inspired by his work just so you know he's immensely popular with the scientists here on the island and our competition apparently (laughs) anyway so they start going about things very scientifically we even have a quick little trip to canada shout out to chris cook my listener in canada (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's a little trip to Canada here. One of the boat captains is French-Canadian. Yep. Chris is not French-Canadian, but, <laughs> you know. And then the other thing that was nuts is the captain's name is LeMay, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know I LeMay. Have a fr- I know a LeMay, John LeMay, the guy who wrote this book right here and many others, you know, the, you know, the, the Lost Films Mutated Edition, you know. And I, I even texted him after I saw that. I was like, Dude, the captain's name in this movie is LeMay. He's like, oh, yeah, I thought that was the giant behemoth, but I guess it's that one. (laughs) Nice. John's been on the show before. He's wonderful. So (laughs) I was, that was a little excited. But then we get to this scene, and honestly, it might be, hmm, it's up there with probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie where they've learned all of this stuff. They've brought back the sailor, another Mm -hmm. sailor who had survived. And what you said, he's like, he doesn't look trustworthy. He's like, he looks like a sailor. He does. He just, he just <laughs> looks so out of it. He's just like, uh, you can tell he, is. <laughs> he looks like a, he looks like a dude <laughs> from the great, from the, what was it? Deadliest catch or whatever yeah, it's yeah, called. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, probably a little hungover, but he was probably on, on sedatives for yeah. a while, you know, cut him some slack. <laughs> you know, all that being said, 
Nesbitt and Elson have this little exchange where he says, hey, if a piece of the sun, I think I'm paraphrasing, if a oh, piece yeah. of the sun flew out onto Earth, I would want to study it and uh, learn all the things about it. And Elson says, yeah, but it would have been seen by a hundred million people or something like yeah. that. And then Nesbitt replies by saying, you know, because he's trying to compare this with the monster. Yeah. And Nesbitt replies by saying, wouldn't matter if a hundred million people saw it or nobody saw it. It just is. Mm-hmm. It would still simply be, I think is how he put it. I just wanted to like mic drop <laughs> right there. I mean, that's so applicable to a lot of things, science, yes. religion, so many things, yep. you know, both of us are good Christian yes. people here. You know, we would latch onto that and be like, see, you know, we yep. can argue for the existence of God yeah. just because, you know. If it's true, it's true. It's, if it's true, it's true. That is what's wonderful about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a good argument. Yeah, it was, it was a tremendous one. Although then later on, uh, Elson has another one of my favorite lines. It's along those same lines. See, my wow. podcast... uh, J- Jimmy's been very generous with the rim shots. I haven't gotten the sad tr- uh, trombone yet. See, I have to do my own rim shot to my podcast. <laughs> it's because you wish you had I, uh, <laughs> my setup here on the island. It's a very nice setup. <laughs> yes. And they call up one of the military higher-ups who's friends with Nesbitt, and he's telling him, you know, to keep an eye on things and all of that. And he's like, really? You want me to keep an eye out for, you know, a giant monster? And he starts rattling off these things like, you know, what was it? Flying, one of them was flying, flying saucers. saucers. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like 2020. But you know, it was like, monsters and flying saucers? Like, yeah, it sounds like 2020. But, <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then Ellison says, how do you know flying saucers aren't real? I know that's a great line. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it, it's just thrown away there. Yeah, and it keep just moving. throws it in there. And uh, I, I'm going to tell you right now, they are real. Jimmy has at least one in his garage. Oh, I don't doubt so, it. And it's, I need to see you know, this garage it's this the, time. It's from the, I think it's one from the uh, Disco Space Nuns. So, you know, we're I a need, little careful with that one. I, yeah, I need to take a tour of this garage. I didn't get to see it last time with here. Okay, awesome, awesome. I'm so glad you'll take me. If I'm here, I might as well see the sights. Yeah, definitely. So clearly we've had a little bit more to say about this movie than even I was necessarily expecting. Yeah, because I think you can talk about it in lots of different ways because the way it relates to lots of other movies is important, even though from our 70 years in the future, it doesn't seem all that groundbreaking it really was. Yeah, which I guess brings up the question. I'll throw this out. We're not a review show. We're a film appreciation, film discussion show. Do you think removing this film from its place in history, Mm -hmm. is this a good film on its own? I would say yes. Yeah, I I would say yes, too. I don't know if it's a great film on its own. I think it's a good film on its own. Yeah, I would probably say this is a good film. I would say Godzilla, the original Godzilla, that's a great film. Yes, I would, yes, I would say that. I, again, there's a lot of good elements in this. It all, it all fits together well. I think just because it doesn't have a deep second layer, I might not throw it into the great. Probably not. Me. I mean, I know, me you were, I know you were calling it the Jaws of 1953. Well, I was half joking that, yeah. yeah, but I would say that there are more layers in Jaws. Yes, yes, so I would most agree. Certainly. I just want to say that. Remember how I said I had three exceptions to the book is always better? Jaws is one of them. Yeah. So, well, Spielberg, fight me. <laughs> Spielberg's very good about layering emotion and plot and stuff. Yeah. And this this movie, again, it's partly just the time period. just doesn't have as much of the emotional level going on. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's I think it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's like, oh, some B-50s movie. I think it's a step above that, certainly. Yeah. If not a couple. 
Well, and we've been talking about this movie's legacy a bit already, but there's some other ones I haven't mentioned yet, including one that is not only relevant to this podcast, is also relevant for you, Nick, which is Cloverfield. Cloverfield. This, this I has re- a Cloverfield connection because there actually is a clip of this movie of the beast, the Retosaurus, that is put into Cloverfield. Oh, I guess it don't, well, it's been a long time since it's Cloverfield. It's been a long but, time since I've seen Cloverfield. I really enjoyed well, Cloverfield when there. I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it makes sense because all three of those monsters, and again, this is, comes a lot, but they all come from the ocean. Mm-hmm. They all emerge from the deep. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Which is what the, that was the working title for the script, Monster from the Deep. Yeah. And I, and I get that. There's a nice sort of symbolism to the rising up out of the primordial yeah, chaos the, of, the, yeah. of the waters. Mm hmm. The sea is often used, particularly in ancient literature, yes. even relatively speaking, more recent yeah. literature. Especially in like Herman Melville, Moby Dick. Yep. The sea is this pool of chaos, this unknown, and there are things that come out of it, and we don't know what it is. Leviathans. Leviathans, you know, uh, you know, and or it's this dangerous thing that has to be crossed, and things like that, mm-hmm. and then. You know, if you're speaking biblically, the turbulent sea is a manifestation of God's power, but it's also something that he has control over and he can yeah. calm it and things like that. Yeah. Or monsters come out of it. Yeah. You know? Or yeah. monsters come out, which, yeah, it's, just, it's a nice sort of modern take on the mythic idea of the sea. Yeah. So it totally makes sense. Um, yeah. Also, just to let, it, let you know, the them and King Kong also have clips in Cloverfield nice. as makes well. Makes sense. So it makes sense. And also, I mean, I know we've already said may not necessarily be a great movie, but uh, apparently AFI would disagree. And again, yeah, I, AFI put it on their hot 100 greatest sci-fi films. Although, again, I think that might be more because of its place in history and a little bit less its own merits. I mean, it certainly has its own merits, but its place in history, I think, would probably bump it into the top 100. Yeah, it's because... not the top 10. I found the top yeah. 10, and it's not the top 10, but it's in the top 100 Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, if you're a science fiction fan of any sort, certainly an yeah, enjoyable thing to watch. Yeah, really, I hesitate to call it homework, but <laughs> if you're a kaiju fan, you owe it to yourself to watch this. Similarly to what I would say about the original King Kong, because it's so instrumental mm-hmm. in the development of this genre, you need to see it. Well, and between me, I was here for the original King Kong, King Kong is a really good movie. I mean, that's a great movie. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's amazing how well that movie holds up for being that old. Yeah. And this doesn't quite have that same sort of like, what? This was made? You know, this feels like we've been 50. You watch, watch King Kong and like, wait, this is that old? I can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, so. most definitely. But, and at least... I'm just, I'm going to harp on it. At least King yeah. Kong let us breathe for a minute before it ended. I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah, the ending is very, like, it's dead. The yeah. End. Nothing else yeah. to talk about. You know, it's it's a, even a little bit celebratory, which is kind of strange, which was not in the original Godzilla at all. They kill Godzilla in the original movie, and it's a somber moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is a very somber moment because Dr. Yamane says, there could be another one. Yeah. If we don't learn our lessons about nuclear weapons, there could be another one. Well, which, again, illustrates the major cultural differences. I mean, even the Americanized version of the original movie tries to end on a more positive, a very American thing to do. We like happy endings. But even that is still pretty somber. It just has this little bit of levity thrown in where reporter Steve Martin, a.k.a. Raymond Burr, says, the monster is dead, but so is a great man, but now the world can wake up and live again. I mean, so it's even, it's trying to put up a a happier spin on it, but, you know, it's still maintaining the somberness of it. Really, I think the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, that and Godzilla comparing them is a really good way to tackle the movie, I think. Yeah, which 
perhaps will be a subject for a future episode. I don't know. I make no promises. Yes. But it'll be an interesting one, to say the least. But now, it's time to move in to our toku topics. Okay, so we're actually going to be tackling a pair of topics here. And I will admit, if I really wanted to, and actually with one of these I kind of did in a previous podcast life, really dive really deep into both of these things. They're both really fascinating histories about two very different things. Yes. But they are components, not necessarily essential components. You know, it's got... One from the beginning and one from the end. That the I just past realized that in the future. Yeah, I just realized I kind of like, oh, I picked one thing that gets brought up at the beginning and then gets dropped, and then I get another one <laughs> gets that gets dropped. brought up at the beginning and then gets brought up at the end and doesn't, but didn't really get mentioned before this. And that is, we're going to talk about briefly, briefly history of nuclear tests and amusement parks. Yeah, amusement a parks. Little, Those are fun. Little, yeah, a little history on amusement we'll parks. Take you on a ride. <laughs> That's what Marvel vs. Capcom 2 kept promising me. I'm gonna take you for a ride. I don't understand that soundtrack. It is one of the weirdest soundtracks in any video game. Anyway, no tangents. No tangents. No, derail trains of thought. Yes. Drop my. You drop your show there, there as yep. much as you can. All right. So, nuclear tests. There have been a lot of nuclear tests. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 2,212. So uh, now, I will admit this number may be out of date now, but that's what I had. That's through semi recently. Yeah, at least semi recently. So, like early on, did have they accumulated or has it been a lot at one time and then they slowed down? I saw a chart that showed how many there were per year and there was a giant spike in 1963. Oh, okay. Giant. It was huge. That was the most of any year. Okay, so it's uh, ramping the up 50s, by this point. Because we're primarily going to be talking a lot about stuff that led up to the time of this movie. Yeah, so there weren't 50s. nearly as many before then, but there's been 2,200, over 2,200 total. Wow, that's more than I would have guessed. different nations since 1945. Wow. There is what you could kind of call the nuclear club. Yep. The actual nuclear powers, United States, Russia, France, Britain. You know, the, I can't remember all of the nations offhand right now. Unfortunately, North Korea. North Korea, yeah. And apparently, apparently Israel has some nukes, but they don't really tell anybody. Well, that sounds. But though, it's like everyone just kind of like, yeah, they have nukes, they just don't tell us. <laughs> that sort of a thing. Yeah. It's an, it, like I said, it's, that's a whole rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. To uh, no, jump you could, down. Yeah, you could yeah. do a ton of work yeah. on that. So over 2,200 and more than half of them, the number I have here exactly is 1,032 by the U.S. alone. We did a lot. Of, well, and then 727, again, could be out of date, by, well, this says the Soviet Union could be Russia as well. Yeah, you know? yeah. Nuclear tests have dropped drastically over the last 40 years. Or yeah, so. I would I, I would have guessed that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the rest of them, I already kind of named some of these countries, but the rest of those tests were conducted by the U.K., France, China... India, China. Pakistan, and... North Korea. Unfortunately, North Korea. Yeah. And then you know, there are some noteworthy tests throughout this history. Most of them actually occur after 1953, which is after this movie. The most important one, I would say, particularly in the kaiju genre, is Castle Bravo, because you know, we'll get into it a little bit later, but that's an important one from 1954. Then Zar Bomba. Zar Bomba. Uh, yeah. The biggest Soviet nuclear test from 1961. And then... Five nine six, 
1964, which was the first Chinese nuclear test. And I just like to point out that all of these big name, famous nuclear tests all sound like band names. Yeah. I'm just saying. All these code names, they sound like band names. I could seriously see, particularly Czar Bomba. They should have named like... one of them Operation Experiment. Though. Yes. <laughs> I suddenly want there to be a music festival on the island with all these bands. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I'd come oh, back oh, for I'll that. suggest that to the board sometime. Can, can I reserve Operation Experiment? For sure, my band? you can have Operation Experiment. Okay, awesome. The name of your first album will be X-Day. X-Day, exactly, X-Day. <laughs> what X kind of music gonna... does Operation Experiment do? Well, let me, get, let me guess, let me guess. Yes. Alternative? EDM. Because <laughs> you're experimental, you're an experimental band. <laughs> 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 All right. So some that are also noteworthy that lead before 1953, the, yeah. t- uh, the year of this movie, you have RDS-37, which was the first Soviet nuclear test okay. in 1949. Operation Hurricane from Great Britain, 1952. Rocky like a hurricane. <laughs> yes. Yes. Again, the song references. The, the matters are not here, but you're filling that void. I love it. Then these just sound a little bit funny to me. Ivy Mike which was an American test, and this was the first cryogenic fusion fuel staged thermonuclear weapon in 1952. Mike sounds like something from, like, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. It does. One guys, yeah. Yeah, and then you have Ivy King. That's his uh, second boss form. Apparently. (laughs) He leveled up. (laughs) The U, which is another American test, the largest pure fusion weapon ever tested in 1952. And then we have Joe Four. Which was a Soviet test, I believe. I don't have it here, unfortunately, in my notes. I think that was 1953. Okay. And it was their first fusion weapon that they ever tested. So this old, at that point, they were just keep upgrading and testing them and seeing mm-hmm. what's going mm-hmm. on. So we're mm-hmm. so it's growing in the... I mean, 60s is really where the, all the... T- most of the tension. Yeah, is. yeah, that's when the the Cold War yeah. gets ramped up like crazy. So just, yeah. We're ramping up here. So that's why right now in, in our movie, it's sort of just like, yeah, we did it. Yay. Yeah. I mean, it... We've talked about it yeah. earlier. Yeah. It's a concern. It's something that, you know, but, but there's an optimism to there's it. There's an optimism to it. It still has that very American kind of cavalier attitude to yeah. it, which again, nowhere in a Japanese no. film. No. <laughs> nowhere in a Japanese film. So the first ever nuclear test was conducted July 16th, 1945, in Jornada del Muerto. Mm hmm which is a desert 35 miles southeast of Socorro, New Mexico, and it was part of the Manhattan Project. Yep, yep. It was codenamed Trinity by Oppenheimer, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was the director of the Los Alamos Laboratory where the bombs were, were developed. Yep. And it was inspired. Got a lot of literature references coming up this episode, which I guess shouldn't be surprising considering you're the guest, that it was inspired by a line in a John Donne poem. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. And this test was actually the same model as the Fat Man bomb that got dropped on Nagasaki. Okay. Well, yeah, it's only not that, yeah, only a little bit before. Yeah. And then when did they find out about the radiation things? Yeah, obviously, even in this movie, they're like, hey, get anything on the Geiger counter. Yeah. Come back. Uh, the dangers of radiation were unknown at the time when those tests were being conducted in 1945. Well, yeah, at that point, they're just like, I know early on people were like, we may even destroy the atmosphere with this, or you know, they. Didn't oh yeah, know. absurd things like that. Yeah. Like it would ignite the atmosphere. They didn't know what it. was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, they, which makes you wonder how the heck they went. Although I think as the process was going on, I think the scientists were like, "You're crazy. That could never happen." 
So when they conducted this first test, it was conducted in secret. They didn't know all the details about the radiation, so they didn't evacuate anybody. And then the fallout from the blast was detected as far as our home state of Indiana. Oh, How great. terrifying is that? That's kind of nuts. Yeah. New Mexico, Indiana. Yeah. Yes, I know. You would have been very happy because you lived in New York. Although this was before you were born, I think. Yeah, I don't... Your you, timeline really makes no sense to me. But that's immaterial. It's neither there or then. Yes. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Exactly. So... So, random sidetrack. So, I watched this video one time where it asked, what was the fastest moving man-made object ever? And... According to this video, at least, it was a manhole above one of these underground nuclear tests that got shot straight into space, basically. Yeah, I'll just show you that video sometime. It was crazy. I, that's there from the calculating from the video watching it. They think it was just ended up being the fastest man-made object ever. Listeners, you can't see it because there's no video for this, but I am covering my mouth in shock and my jaw was just hanging open. I just... Wow. I'll have Just, to show it to you. Make wow. Double check my accuracy before putting that part in. But Are you freaking kidding me? You found that manhole in orbit? Seriously? Where is it now? It's that pin you've been wearing? It's not very big. Oh, oh that makes sense. it would melt going through the atmosphere. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. Interesting. You collect very interesting things, apparently. So if, they, if you ever need money here on the island, I guess you can do an auction. <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't saying you should. I'm just saying, okay, never mind. I, I apologize. I just, okay. Yeah, just thinking. <laughs> Talking out loud. Yeah, you do that a lot. I do. You're, the mo you're one of the most talkative introverts I know. <laughs> so anyway, residents, going back to this test. Residents in the immediate area were exposed to over 20,000 millirems of radiation, which is 10,000 times the safety limit by the Nuclear Regulatory Commissions. Hmm, yeah, not good. They were breathing in contaminated air. They were ingesting contaminated rainwater and goat's milk. Oh. So we had radioactive goats? Sure, why not? That sounds like... Uh, a terrible a movie, movie waiting to happen. Yeah, exactly. Radioactive goat. There's another band name for it. We are the radioactive goats. Billy Goats Giant. <laughs> By the 1950s, the U.S. had a dedicated nuclear test sites in Nevada and the Marshall Islands. Yep. The Soviets were conducting tests in Kazakhstan. The most infamous test, we already mentioned this a little bit, was Castle Bravo, which was done on the Bikini Atoll. The scientists underestimated the far-reaching effects... This is a very condensed version because yes, we're not yeah, talking about Godzilla because this is directly related to Godzilla. Yeah. The scientists underestimated the far-reaching effects, so the crew of a nearby fishing ship, the Lucky Dragon Number 5, were plagued by radiation sickness with one of them dying, and fish supplies were contaminated. This fallout and that of other tests eventually led to the Partial Ban Treaty in 1962, which limited nuclear tests to underground tests, although it took about two decades for countries yeah. to actually stop doing atmospheric tests altogether. So here's a question, Did and maybe you don't know this. How much was the public aware of these tests back, say, in the 50s? Or was it not well known? I get the feeling, especially since we see it in this film, that the public was aware of these things, at least in one form or another. The Project Manhattan tests were obviously secret. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. this is something, the impression I'm getting is that this is stuff that is common knowledge that okay. people are aware of. 
because this film is tapping into that. That's true. That's true. So they must be aware enough that it's like, oh, this is a thing mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. happens. And I know with the movie Them with the giant ants, they actually take it a step further because those are nuclear mutated mm-hmm. ants. Okay. And the nuclear component in that, for what I understand, I haven't seen Them yet. Don't hate me. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh, you say that every day. I don't believe you for a second. <sighs> See what I have to work I with? I know, I know. Yeah. Anyway, I think the nuclear angle is stronger in that, so yeah. there's a little bit more of that nuclear fear, I think, present in that film, which was just a year after this, Yeah, I might add. Like I said, it's something that people are aware So things are in the back. It's in the background. It's part. It's becoming part of the cultural. Mm-hmm. The zeitgeist. Zeitgeist. Yeah. I mean, like, use like, that word, the yeah. Cold War is taking off. So yeah. I think you, you get the tiniest smidgens of it in this movie. You know, yeah. The just, fear of nuclear annihilation. It's not all that strong, but it's at least kind of implicit because, like I said, this was the first atomic monster movie. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, for all intents and purposes, for the 50s and 60s, Radiation is essentially magic. It can do whatever you want. It can thaw out 100 million-year-old dinosaurs. It can mutate another one and make it breathe nuclear fire. It just one can make you know a spider can get too close to a reactor, bite Peter Parker, and he gets superpowers. Yeah, why not? You know, it it was magic. And then there came a point where that shifted away from radiation to genetics. Then genetics became magic magic that you could. You know, that you could do whatever you wanted with it. You could make up all so kinds of So what's our current magic? VR? No, that's what well, was like 80s. No, more of a 90s thing. 90s? More, more, much yeah. more of a 90s So thing. what is our current? Probably still kind of genetics at this point, M- I would multiverse. say. Multiverse? Yeah, multiverse. Just yeah. Time travel. There, there's a lot of multiversal theory going on around here on the island. Trust yeah. me. Uh, I don't, yeah. Trust me about that. I, will I hear in, about I will, it all the time. I will in this timeline. Yes. My other one, I probably won't. Maybe not. Okay. All right, as fun as talking about the multiverse and string theory and all that would be, I'm sure Jimmy would be excited about this. I mean, he used to work at NASA. That's true. So oh, I, they, I heard that. They love all of that stuff. They eat it up. Yeah. You should see all the things that he retweets it from. He, like, he follows every space and NASA thing oh, in okay. existence on Twitter. It's kind of nuts. But all that being said, let's move on to a lighter topic. Yes. Because you can get really depressing about all of this nuclear stuff. Yes. Well, let's move on to something a little more amusing. You're a jerk, Jimmy. Anyway, talk about theme parks. Yes. At least briefly. Because... We'll stay on track. Gee whiz, Jimmy, you're nicer (laughs) to Nick. Is it because he's the guest? You're just nicer to the guests. I see how this works. Unless it's joy, nope. right? Do I need to remind you about the beating you took from Dimagine? I'm just saying. Actually, he emailed our podcast. He loves our pun times. Of course he does. So we end in an amusement park. Yeah. Which is kind of fun. It kind of different. I mean, it's a different sort of ending. You're like, yeah. oh, we're in a roller coaster. Oh, hey, let's do this thing. Yeah. And, um, the and thing let's is, do this thing. It is a, they did film in a... Real amusement park. It was the Pike, which is over in the the Long Beach area of of California. Mm-hmm. Now they passed the Pike off as a different theme park. It's not the Pike because yeah. you know obviously this is in New York and the Pike is in California. California. So the thing that's a little bit confusing is a lot of sources, most sources honestly, including Harryhausen and Bradbury yeah. in that little interview we watched. They said it was Coney Island. Yes, but I looked at another source. I think it was Wikipedia that said it was the. Palisades Amusement Park, which mm. is on Coney Island. Apparently, Coney Island had multiple theme parks at one point or another. Okay. So I'm a little bit confused about that. 
But like I said, it was filmed at the Pike. We're going to talk a little bit about the Pike specifically because that is where the movie was filmed. And there are other movie connections. Great movie connections. Yes. 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 So amusement parks, though, it was interesting. We were saying that the atomic bombs were kind of growing the testing at this point. But amusement parks were kind of declining. They were on the decline at by, this, by point. this point. Yeah. By this point. I mean, they're, I guess, pre-World War II, it was kind of their heyday. Yeah, right. the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age. The, the, the Great Gatsby Day. See, we got more literary yeah, references there we go. coming in. So the Great Gatsby Day. Because days. people have money. They have time. Mm-hmm. They have cool automobiles. I don't mm-hmm. know. That. <laughs> and they went like, I'm bored. Let's go do something fun. You know what? I'm going to really go crazy. I'm going 10 miles an hour around on a horse. And that would be cool. <laughs> the carousel. Exactly. The like, carousel. whoa, what's going on? Oh, my gosh. And you got the, the World's Fair. Going on yeah. in lots of places. Yeah, so th- there's a lot of elements that uh, went into that. I'm going to run through them here okay, go for really it. quick. So theme parks actually come from three different traditions. Traveling to fairs. Yes, which is, yeah, like re- you go to the Renaissance Fair now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just old school stuff. Uh-huh. Pleasure gardens mm-hmm. and exhibitions, which we've talked about. So like pleasure already. gardens like Babylonian, like the Babylonian gardens? Probably. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like old, that. old school. I was just yeah, curious. yeah, yeah. Yeah, an exhibition, like, you know, World's Fair, that yeah. sort of stuff. The oldest fair, you know, if you're talking about the you know the periodic yeah. fairs, like you know, you and I, we grew up in Indiana, and Apple we Festival. all we know all, yeah, yeah, Apple or, Festival in Kendallville, or 4-H fair, the 4-H, fairs. the 4-H fair. Well, I lived near a little place called North Webster, Indiana. They had the Mermaid Festival. The Fort Wayne had Three Rivers Festival. Or you you read things like I don't know how accurate it is, Sword in the Stone, and they have that whole kind of festival yeah. world the knights go yeah. to and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the oldest festival of that type is the Bartholomew Fair in England, which started in 1133 that's old yes <laughs> almost as old as jimmy oh calm down like i said i'm still confused about your timeline he looks good for however old he is and he's apparently 30 but oh wow that's what he says he does not look well for his age then <laughs> <laughs> okay just joking jimmy just joking don't worry about it yeah, you might want to be nice to him. Uh, he may not bring you back next time. I, I, well, that's true. I need. Yeah, he saved me. <laughs> yeah, but we we made the, we made friends when that first time we skydived. Yeah, when you pair, yeah, yeah, so you skydove out. Yeah, yeah. Sky we face time each other. Is it skydove or skydived? I mean, I think it's skydove. Skydive. Yeah. Anyway, back on track. So by the 18th and 19th centuries, they had evolved to the point where. The masses could go see freak shows and acrobatics and other entertainment, you know, like like the circus. Yeah, you know, the Barnum and Bailey. Bar- exactly, you know, is like that sort of stuff. It probably grew out of the same tradition. Things that we don't see normally. The world's oldest amusement park, which is an example of a pleasure garden, is the Bakken, hmm. or the Hill in Copenhagen, Denmark, and it was opened in 1583. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The first World's Fair was in 1851 in London and began with the construction of the Crystal Palace. I've heard about that. Mm -hmm. It was meant to celebrate the world's industrial achievements. Look how great we have done things. Yes. Like the first elevator, I think, was at one of the World's Fairs. Really? I think so. That makes sense. That makes sense. The forerunner to the amusement park in America was the first Columbian Exposition in Chicago. In 1893, 
it was here that people got to ride the first steel Ferris wheel. Which would have been quite mm-hmm. a thing. I mean, Ferris wheels are still sort of thing if you don't like heights. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, back then, it would have been this incredible feat of engineering at yeah, that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jimmy knows all about engineering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was also the first to have a midway. Okay. Many amusement parks developed out of pleasure resorts in the 1800s, not unlike the resort we have yeah, here. It's a very nice resort. We don't have a theme park. That's you our should. Competi- that's our competition. <laughs> I think you need a theme park. Bring the kids to, you know, a little like dinosaurs you can ride or a tiny kaiju. Be eaten by, yeah, be eaten by Godzilla. <laughs> go through his intestines. It'd be a fun ride. It's like a, it's like a water slide. And like, wow. <laughs> well. It's, it's funny that you bring that up because in Japan, on the mainland, they just opened up this little zip line at oh, really? a, I don't remember if it's at a theme park or not, but it's, a, it's on the mainland, like I said, and it's Shin Godzilla lying on his stomach with his mouth wide open and you zip line into oh, his really? mouth and go through well, his saw... neck and then you come out. Oh, really? It looks, I've seen video of it, of people recording themselves yeah. as they go through it. It looks really well, I and saw I they really, really want to go. If I ever get some vacation time anytime soon here from the island, you can bet that's where I'm going. Well, I saw they made the a Gundam robot there too. Yes. That was supposed to be for a theme yes. park. Yes. Jimmy was very excited about that yeah. because, you know, he works on giant robots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that frighten me? No. No? Okay. I'm all for the giant robots. Okay. I'm totally for the giant robots. So, getting back to the theme park. The first permanent amusement park in America was the Sea Lion Park in Coney Island. Coney Island, New York City. Connection, which opened in 1895. It was the first to charge admission to enter and then charge more for the rides. Yep. That was always fun, right? Yep. You know, buy tickets. Yeah. Steeplechase Park and others opened later. By 1910, as many as a million people were admitted to these parks a day. That's crazy. That is insane to think about. And, oh, this connects to the movie, right? Because what happens? The roller coaster crashes and starts a fire, and then the the roller coaster track burns down. Yeah. And we have this cool visual to go with, as as Harryhausen put it, you know, his monster dies like a tenor in a... In an opera. Yes. It's this very dramatic, dramatic death, you know, and I kept thinking, it's like, where's your soliloquy? I, you need your soliloquy. But uh, Not as fire, dramatic as Yangri. Yes. <laughs> Yangri. Fire was a constant threat in these days, and several Coney Island parks have burned down, most notably Dreamland in 1911 okay. and Luna Park in 1944. Okay, if my memory serves, so there's a podcast called The Memory Palace that does little historical kind of vignettes. Um, and they have a story about Dreamland, and it's a really good oh. one, and then how at the end it burns down. Send me a link, and I'll share it yeah, in the in Yeah, the, I'll send it. It's a really good notes. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also need to make sure I listen to it. Yes. <laughs> Amusement parks reached the peak of their popularity. We talked about this a little yes. bit earlier during the Gilded Age because Americans worked fewer hours and they had more disposable income. The first kitty park, we've heard reference to talk about kitty parks all mm-hmm. the time, opened in 1925 in San Antonio, Texas. Nice. It was during this time the roller coaster yes. was invented as people needed more thrills after World War One. I. I find it interesting that it's after World War One. suddenly people are like, I need something more harrowing <laughs> than a carousel. Yes. Which is, uh, you know, getting... I was like, I just survived a war. I need you to work harder to scare me. People just, we keep getting in and we're like, oh, I'm used to that now. Let's try something better. Yeah, faster. well, in fact... 
I, More I dangerous. Have, I, if, yeah, in fact, I have here the first carousel was built by Frederick Savage in 1880 mm, <laughs> in yeah. England. So, <laughs> yeah, the carousels aren't uh, fun anymore. You know, they're not exciting anymore. Kids love them. Say. Yes. Yeah, that's their first time going round and round that fast. Yes. So, <laughs> Parks declined during the Depression, as you would expect, yeah. and World War II as the affluent population moved to the suburbs and TV became their source of entertainment, which, to kind of bring it full circle again, as much as Ray Bradbury loved movies when we saw that interview, he loved movies, he apparently was not a fan of television and wrote a story called The Pedestrian that touches on that subject and his kind of disdain for television. And I wonder if maybe if this wasn't necessarily in his head because the story in The Pedestrian is just this guy who takes a walk down the street and a robot police car more or less arrests him for daring to do that when he's supposed to be in his house watching TV and stuff like that. And I wonder if it's a similar sentiment that Ray Bradbury is getting at because people were preferring to be entertained in their homes. Oh my gosh, we just dealt with quarantine yeah. because of mm-hmm. COVID, you know, stuff like that. We're dealing with it now. I think that's some of it. And then just some reading between the lines of having read Fahrenheit 451 recently and some other stuff, I think it's also the inanity of some of the TV. Like he likes a big, you know, either thoughtful or, or new or, you know, you know, got mon, you know, he loved some of the old. You know, King Kong's and Lost World and stuff. But I think if it just... Because he worked on, like, The Outer Limits as a TV show, so I think it's just... The Twilight Zone. Twilight... Did you do Twilight Zone, or was it... It was. Oh, okay. I got mixed up. But anyways... Uh, he did The Outer Limits as well, I Oh, think. okay, okay. I think. You can correct me on that if you want, Jimmy. But in any case, I think it's just that TV became kind of cheap entertainment. Mm-hmm. So... Which is interesting. We talk about, you know, the amusement park kind of being like there where they go get their thrills and now we have monster movie where you go get your thrills mm-hmm. and they're both melded together mm-hmm. in this yeah they're, they're both escapist entertainment yeah and yeah. they they work well together as one are there japanese ones that end in like a there's one that ends Actually, in one yes. right i know which one is that is that the dream one no the first one that comes to my mind actually is Godzilla Mothra, the Battle for Earth, or just Godzilla versus Mothra from 1992, that literally has a weaponized Ferris wheel in it. Oh, nice. Batra grabs a Ferris wheel and crashes, well, it, crashes it into Godzilla. Well, the other thing that makes it so great is that it's, an, it's such a nice set. It's very mm-hmm. distinctive. Mm-hmm. And again, the set for the coaster, I think, worked well. Well, and then there is also World Children's Land. Which was a front for an alien invasion in oh, 1972. Oh, I do remember. Yeah. yeah. There is that one. And they had a Godzilla tower, and it nearly killed the real Godzilla. And, yeah, that place got trashed, and I don't think we shed any tears over it. <laughs> Why don't you have a children world children's land here? A world children's land here. You have seriously heard rumors from the board that they might do that. Why am I a little terrified by this? Oh, yeah. Alien invaders. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> again, getting derailed and now getting back on yes. track. But on I'm, track. Uh, the Steeplechase Park closed Island. in 1964. There are several that are still around. Yep. Such as my personal favorite, Cedar Point, Cedar Point. in yeah, Sandusky, yep. Ohio. I spent a lot of time there in my youth. <laughs> then you also have stuff that if they weren't made during the heyday of this and were in that very old-fashioned style, they're certainly 
building on the tradition. So you have Universal Studios, Disneyland, yep. Disney World, mm-hmm. Holiday World, Holiday in World. Santa Claus, Indiana, yep. which is a family-owned amusement park, and Indiana Beach, which unfortunately has closed. That made me very sad. Did you ever go to Fun Spot? I did not. Oh, I remember. That was a little tiny amusement park up near Albion. Really? Yeah, it was just it had like How two roller coasters. One? It was in the I think well, I want to say nineties, and they had like Tilt the World and like one roller coaster and like a couple other rides. And huh. It was kind of cool. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe makes me sad. And then you know another one would be Six Flags. Yep, Six Flags. Yep. So Dollywood, Dollywood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, Dollywood. <laughs> so all of that to say, they're still around. I mentioned mine. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite amusement park? Well, I enjoyed the Cedar Point. I like I like roller coasters. I'm not like a super roller coaster fiend. Um, I have good memories of Kings Island. Actually, we went I have a couple not been fam- to Kings Island. Couple family vacation. Yeah. We went on you know the, the beast. beast, the, the beast. beast, the beast from twenty thousand fathoms. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> we went on that. I'm at the age now with my kids that would love to go down in Disney World. And see, mm-hmm. because just but be I went there timing. as a kid. I think it would be a very different experience going there as an adult with children. Yeah, exactly. So story time. So we were in California for a Honda convention. My dad owned a Honda dealership, uh, motorcycles, and Honda rented out after Disneyland closed from like seven till ten. Rented out for just the Honda employees. We just got ride all the rides. Oh, no lines, man. no nothing. It was cool. Oh man. Only time I've been to Disneyland, but it was it was wow. it was cool. Yeah, it was wow. cool. Well, since I mentioned at the beginning that this film was filmed at the Pike, and the interestingly, Pike. they had to wait until the theme park was closed to mm-hmm. film there, and they so they were filming those scenes for this climax between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. <laughs> Can you That's imagine like, that? Yeah. Can you imagine seeing the film crew come in? You're you're wrapping up whatever you're doing at the theme park, and suddenly they're coming in and it's like, "What are you guys doing? We're making a monster movie." I mean, <laughs> that must have been really interesting yeah. to say the least. So, some facts that I gathered since I mean, it's not the park, but it's where they filmed it. But yeah. some very interesting. This park has its own interesting history. So these are just a few of the bullet points that I found that I thought were interesting. So it was built by Charles Drake in 1902. It's in Los Angeles in the Long Beach area. It started as a Greek revival-style bathhouse called The Plunge. Weird. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, that's how a lot of these start. They start as one thing, and then they keep growing. Growing. Yeah. People come, so you make more attractions, Mm -hmm. more people come. Mm -hmm. By 1915, a roller coaster called The Jackrabbit. Did he bring ice cream? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Pirates World. Pirates World, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's the... I've never been to Pirates World, but the Ice Cream Bunny has been. Yes, yes, and listeners, if you don't know what that is, you need to go find Santa Claus and the Ice Cream Bunny on RiffTracks.com. Now you will thank me later. Watch the one with Thumbelina, not the one with Jack and the Beanstalk. Yes, Yes. I haven't seen that one yet. I've seen the Thumbelina one. It's painful and wonderful, and I will blot out the sun and other such things. (laughs) Yeah, which the Jackrabbit was designed by Frederick Ingersoll and John A. Miller, the latter going on to become one of the premier coaster designers. Oh, nice. Mm Mm-hmm. And they also had an attraction called the Wall of Death, which was a psilodrome where motorcycle stuntmen like Reckless Ross Millman would perform. Nice. So I guess he was the evil Knievel of his day. The Jackrabbit 
was replaced in 1930 by a coaster that's very important for several reasons, The called the Cyclone Racer. Go, Cyclone Racer, go, Cyclone Racer. <laughs> doesn't roll off the tongue. No, quite not quite way. as no, much. No, yeah, it it's because uh, it's two syllables it's, in that one. Yeah. Yeah, I took a poetry, uh, several poetry classes, I should say, while I was in grad school, and I learned about these things. You, yep. Yeah. Which was in this film. So the roller coaster we saw the at one the climax, climb up. that is the Cyclone Racer. It was designed by Frederick Church with a budget of $140,000. So I'm sitting here thinking $140,000, 1930? Wow. Well, th- that would have been millions Didn't they say this money. movie was made on 200000 Yeah. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. That was in 1953. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. It had a reputation for people dying while riding it, which just makes the whole climax that much more ironic because they let some of the train cars go for the roller coaster. And because the, the beast, beast, the beast, the beast of 20,000 20, fathoms. It's from, but anyway, oh. <laughs> he wrecks some of it. So it crashed and that starts the fire. So it's just, yeah. Wow, this is almost too meta, you yeah. know? And it claimed dozens of lives over its lifespan. Wow. I found this funny quotation, well, not funny, but interesting quotation from a columnist named Tim Grobady. Quote, the Cyclone Racer was specifically designed so that one out of every 2,000 people who wrote it would surely lose their life. Wow. That hurts. Yeah. It's like being the red shirt. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Right. Like a final destination. Let's go on this roller coaster. Oh, no, that is a thing in those movies. At least one of them. Oh, is that? I've not seen any of them. I haven't either. I just know it's a thing. Moving on. After prohibition, bars and tattoo parlors <laughs> were opened at the Pike. Okay. Since there was a Navy base okay. in Long Beach, it was a popular spot for sailors and Marines who wanted to get tattoos. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. A game, this is interesting, particularly if you're a gamer, a game similar to pinball and bingo, I'd love to know how that works, called Light Align, and by the way, when I say light, it's Mm L-I-T-E, was located behind the carousel, but it was burned in 1943. Then it got replaced by Loof's Light Align Arcade, which is still in operation. Loof's Light Align Arcade. I kind of like that. That feels like it should be like the name of a comic strip. It does sound like a comic strip name because apparently the only good things worth reading in a newspaper are the, the comics. comics yeah. The comics, yeah. As the movie illustrated. Not as much it. anymore that Farsight doesn't exist. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Makes me sad. At its peak in 1954, so just a year after they filmed this movie, yeah. it was the fifth largest amusement park in the country. Wow. Fifth largest in America. That's pretty darn big for that time. Yeah. And as you yes, kind of is, hinted at... Yes, this is the one... This has... A, we remember nothing else, audience. Yeah. This is this it. This park has been used in about two dozen films. They've also filmed some episodes of television there. Uh, one of the articles I looked at said that there were episodes of uh, Charlie's Angels filmed okay. there in the 70s. It was... Since it's really close to Hollywood, it was a popular place to go film stuff. There is another infamous monster movie that has both the park and the Cyclone Racer coaster. Do you want to tell us what that is, Nick? It is the incredibly strange creatures who, who stopped living and became mixed-up zombies. I've heard it's also who died and became mixed-up zombies. Which way is it? Uh, I, the one I have is who stopped living. Okay. Yeah. So that anyways, one actually sounds a little bit funnier, the, to be the, honest. Yes. Oh, that movie. And uh, that I have movie. seen this. I have seen it twice. It was an MST3K because that's how I saw it. That's the only way to even pretend to watch it. Yes. It has more dance numbers than any movie should. 
Yes. And no zombies. Not well, really. Well, maybe at the kind end. Kind of. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. So, um, yes. If you have not seen it, be thankful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jimmy. Oh, that's like watching the holiday special without riffs. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, I, I watch it without riffs, which I forever regret. Happy I'd, life day. I'd, I'd, <laughs> Lumpy. I don't know. <laughs> uh, moving on. Yes. But yes. Please. Uh, but yes, that park and the coaster are in that movie. A lot. So now actually. if that I watch that. in there way more than it should be. Just yeah. Like, so yeah. now if I watch that MST3K episode again, I'm going to be sitting there going like, where's the, the beast? beast? The beast. The beast. From 20,000 fathoms. When you need him. <laughs> don't put a good movie inside your bad movie. There you go. <laughs> Except the, this one's more like, don't put your good amusement park exactly. in your bad movie. Unfortunately, the Pike is no longer with us. It was closed and demolished in 1979. Then a shopping mall was opened there in 2003. No, oh, all right yeah. then. A Brit, this is interesting because it was just too iconic. A bridge resembling the Cyclone Racer was built there. And one person out of every 2,000 falls off of it. Apparently. <laughs> you gotta keep the reputation. Gotta, gotta keep going. the ratio yeah. going. Yep, yep. A vintage carousel and Ferris wheel have been added since then. It was remodeled in 2014 as the Pike Outlets. Oh, so they got the there's still stuff there, but there's a part of me that feels very sad that this amusement park got torn down and replaced by malls. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of these, a lot of these old amusement parks are gone now. I mean, you got the big ones that still exist, yeah. which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of these old amusement parks that are like abandoned, like in weird, foresty areas. You can go and like look around. It's all creepy and everything. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> there was one in North Webster, Indiana. I mentioned growing up near North Webster, Indiana. That little town of maybe like a thousand people at the most. It's a lake town. Mm-hmm. Had its own little amusement park called Adventureland. And I went there several times as a kid. And I think sometime, I think when I was in high school, somewhere around there, it got shut down. Yep. And then it was torn down. And you know what's there now? A strip mall. Yep. A tiny strip mall with a post office and a subway and a pizzeria. Yeah. And just like, there used to be cool things there. It that makes me sad. Is- well, it's the same thing. With, I mean, it's kind of like what happened. It's so happened with arcades. You know, when I was growing up, they were everywhere. And not because TV, Switch, Xbox, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So it just. They're still big in Japan, weirdly enough. That's nice. Much bigger in Japan than they are in America but, at this point. But I suppose, and again, it has nothing to do with the movie, but maybe a little bit to do with Bradbury. This movement from communal areas of entertainment to personal areas of entertainment has been a big switch over the last 100 years. You're not wrong. Yeah. Bradbury, I don't think necessarily wrote, as far as I know, I could be wrong, didn't write a story along those lines, but I think that sentiment is, you'll find that in his yeah, work. Yeah, he, he, he liked things to be slowed down and personal. You know, he hated the fast cars and the all that sort of stuff. So Yeah, yeah. Which I don't know where this movie fits in his well, other things. I'd like to know what he feels about this movie. Sounds like he was very happy about it. Well, I mean, you get you something you wrote, got, and you love dinosaurs. And see, that's the great thing about, I think, you know, wrap up this movie and and amusement parks is that just that simple childish joy of going on a ride, seeing lights, seeing a dinosaur on the big screen. 
that's really yeah. He even told a story about uh, he went to a place where they had they were you know they had anima essentially animatronics of dinosaurs, and he said that it would only last for about what four minutes, and he would walk backwards through it so he could watch for ten. So, so I think that's really the appeal of this movie is that it was one of those movies that said we're going to make dinosaurs real again, Mm -hmm. and it worked, especially in the context. Yeah. And, and I think that's what amusement parks were all about. Like, we're going to make you feel like something. You know, that's what I think the appeal of Disney World is. We're going to pretend to take into this place that doesn't really exist. And you can feel like it's, I can go on the Millennium Falcon. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Or the you can have a safe scare on a roller coaster. Exactly. You know? You can go 90 miles an hour and probably go, not go do loop de loops and and th- hopefully not be the one in two thousand. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a safe thrill. Yeah, and there's something special in those sort of safe thrills. And if they're just transferred to something else in amusement parks, that's great. But sad if we lose those sorts of. Yeah, you know, I'm getting nostalgic about all sorts of things that used to be but aren't any longer. I and think I, we all do. And I think Radbury was a very nostalgic sort of guy. Mm-hmm. If you ever read Dandelion Wine, yeah. I think, man, that hurts nostalgic-wise, that book. Yeah, well, that's what nostalgia is. It yeah. is, a, it is a, a painful but pleasant feeling. Yeah, and that, that book what encapsulates it, it. And I suppose, you know, that's what, you know, this movie is for some people. Oh, I'm sure it is. You know, it definitely is. And I think to a certain extent, it sounds like it's fueled by a little bit of nostalgia. Yes. I mean, we saw the interview with Harryhausen and Bradbury, and they talked about growing up and loving dinosaurs and wanting to make stuff like this, and then mm-hmm. they finally got to do it. And you know, the, Dream Bradbury, Bradbury even said, you know, we're big boys is, yep. you know, is what we are. And I totally understand that. I feel the same way. I don't think that, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good thing, I think, to have that sort of like be able to still deeply enjoy just – those unique things. I mean, look what I get to do, man. I'm working on Monster Island. I know. This is awesome. <laughs> I know. It's even if you have to deal with Jimmy. Yes, even if I have to put up with Jimmy. <laughs> All right. Well, this is as good a point as any to transition to a very, very important segment of the show, the Patreon shout-outs. Go show! Travis Alexander, Michael Hamilton, Eli Harris, Danny Domena, Chris Cook, Bex from Redeemed Otaku. <laughs> I hope that was as fun for you as it that, was. For that me. was a lot of fun, actually. Yes. <laughs> At some point, maybe you should check out Ultraman Z. That's where I got this. <laughs> And yes, listeners, I want to just give you a quick reminder. You too can get perks like shout outs on the podcast, just like this for as little as $3 a month. So please go to our Patreon. And if you're able, please start pledging to the show. We would really appreciate it. We've got some goals that we're trying to meet that, you know, if we can get enough funding each month to help keep the lights on, so to speak, around here. The board's not giving me all the money that I need, you know. And apparently they're all about, you know, making the extra cash, let or me tell you. maybe they're saving up for World Kids World or whatever it's called. World Children's yeah. Land? Yeah. Maybe. Might shut down my Patreon if uh, I knew about that. I'm no. kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. All right, Nick, got some more housekeeping that we need to take care of here. You'll be interested to know that this is our last full-length episode for the season unfortunately we were supposed to have godzilla versus kong but jimmy you keep saying that i can do an episode but 
there's no way. There is just no way. Quit feeding me that BS about there being this special premiere for Godzilla vs. Kong one night only here on the island because apparently the studio decided to keep that one date for the like the third release date that they had for the dang thing. I've lost track at this point. I'm sorry. I don't care what the board told you. You are fake news. All right? I'm not buying it. I am just not buying it. You know what? The board can keep threatening to take my invitation away. I'll believe it when I see it. You got that? Whatever at this point, man. But I tell you, if you sneak in another little insert into an episode like you did last time, telling everybody about this, you and I are going to have more words, and they probably won't be family-friendly. I'm just saying. Sorry, Nick. Anyway, like I said, last full-length episode of the season. What remains after this will be either mini-sodes or extended mini-analyses. The next episode is going to be War of the Gargantuas, where I will be joined by Ben Chaffins, writer for Sci-Fi Japan and the author of the recently published book, Discovering Tokusatsu. I interviewed him, actually, a few months ago for the book, right before it was published. That was very nice. And then the episode after that will be Latitude Zero, And that's actually a movie you would probably find a bit amusing, Nick. It has Cesar Romero in it. Nice. Playing another really hammy mad scientist. We were talking about hammy mad scientists Scientists, actually earlier today before we watched the movie. So there you go. (laughs) Nothing's like Doctor Who from... Oh, nothing can top Doctor Who. I'm just saying. Nothing can quite top Doctor Who. And now I have to do something that I haven't had the opportunity to do quite as much over the last few months because Joe and Joy Metter don't have anything to plug. Yes. <laughs> but you've got stuff to plug. I do, and I'm, I'm not great at it, but if um, we might... It's yeah. okay, man. I know shameless self-promotion is not your strong suit as a writer. That's my department. No, that, no. <laughs> but my partner in crime, um, Tim Dio, and I have a podcast, Derail Trains of Thought, and we talk about storytelling for the consumer and the creator. And uh, you can find it on iTunes and Spotify and all those fun places. And we also have the weekly hijack where we just kind of instant react to various TV shows. Right now we're going through a rewatch of Lost. And you just finished Babylon 5. The entire Babylon 5 franchise. Everything from the, the movies... The all five seasons, Crusade. It was fun. It was a lot of fun to see it all one after another. And we had a newbie, my sister-in-law, Brianna, watch it. And she's fun to listen to talk about some of that <laughs> oh stuff. Oh, my gosh. It was the best part of <laughs> she was She episode. was quite entertaining. I listened to all of it. So, it was it was great. So, and I will say I can vouch for Derail Trains of Thought. You guys have been at that for 10 years. 10 years. It is actually, I think that might be, might be the first podcast I ever started listening to. You were Although on that's early. Impo- uh, yeah, I was going to say it's in part because you had me on episode three and yes. then I became a regular. <laughs> and the, you guys are friends of mine, yep. so I kind of had to. And, and we've just been trucking along for the last 10 years and um, we still have a lot of things planned and it should be we have a good backlog, 112 episodes, I believe. Yes. Yeah. And recording. then when you're not podcasting, oh, I, you're also yeah. a writer. I'm also a writer. I suppose I should yeah, just that. like you yeah, know, just like our our pal Bradbury. Yeah. yeah. So and yeah. me as well. We both, we, you know, that's how we met each other. Was actually in school for writing. So, so I suppose if you want to go check out any of my writings, uh, worksofnick.com, and I got like 100 and almost 50 flash fictions, and, and some probably short got stories. five more ideas from this visit oh, alone. We we got a couple of them. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which we'll have to see if we can make something out of. 
But yeah, I and I very much appreciate being come to Monster Island. Wasn't planning on it, but uh, Jimmy interrupted, and I'm like, oh, I'll stay. It's Bradbury. <laughs> that sounds like the title of a movie or something. Jimmy interrupted. Jimmy, Jimmy interrupted. Jimmy interrupted. <laughs> yeah, another flash fiction idea. Coming there you go. Yes. <laughs> oh, another chapter in your autobiography. Sure. What was it called again? The Warrior in Space, the Jimmy from NASA story. Yeah, I think I remember you bringing that up on Twitter. You have fun with that. He said I could be a beta reader. Of course he did. Are you going to invite me to do that? It took you all of that to say maybe. Right. Okay. Well, with all of the shameless self-promoting done, Nick, I think now would be a good time for you to Try to figure out how you're going to get back home in Indiana to, yeah. <laughs> to make the a reference that only Indy 500 fans and other Hoosiers will understand. So good luck with that. Yes. Uh, well, I'm going to see the garage first and then we'll. Yeah, that's right. I'll find get, some sort of get that tour first. There, so. maybe. Yeah. So in order to get that tour started as quickly as possible, Jimmy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcasters. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word about the show. You can also support MIFV on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! No, the credits just rolled and stuff. I got one other thing I need to do, Nick. I know it's a little bit early, but I actually found out that there was an extra copy of the Golden Apples of the Sun in the Sekizawa Library. So, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. And abrupt ending.